Have you ever felt like you don't really belong? Not because there's something wrong with us, you know, it's not us. <laughs> but because, well, you know some people, people just, they're just not really there, okay? We don't belong because we don't want to belong. <laughs> I mean, there's a limit to how low we go, right? Or should we say there's a limit to how low we ought to go? Yes? After the incredible prayer with which Paul concludes the first half of his letter to the Ephesian church, he introduces his practical teaching, urging them to proper living, which requires them to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul's interest is in ensuring that more people learn about the love of Christ. In other words, evangelizing, spreading the gospel. He knows that the church, Jew and Gentile, must work in unity if they are to let the whole world hear the good news. It is also impossible to grow spiritually, individually, or as a church, if one allows an improper rift to exist between themselves and another believer. You may have noticed that we are halfway through the letter and Paul is just now getting to the point of giving them practical instruction. <laughs> that may seem odd at first glance, but a little thought makes it clear. No Christian can live properly for Christ unless they have a solid understanding of Theology. In the eyes of most people, when one says theology, kind of glaze over like someone promised to reveal to them all the intricacies of relativistic physics. <laughs> Doesn't that sound fun? <laughs> but I promise you, it's not that bad. Theology is simply the study of God. That's all it means, the study of God. In fact, every time you come to church, you are, I hope, <laughs> engaging in theology. Every time you read your Bible, you're doing theology. Every question you ask about God and His glory, God and His plan, draws you ever closer to Him. It's theology. And when, you and when your understanding is improved, when our understanding is improved, then we can learn to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So if we are going to delve into the practical instruction, the Holy Spirit drove Paul to write, we'd better review the theological construction of his note to this point. God the Father chose us before the world began. God the Son died for us before we ever were. God the Spirit guaranteed our inheritance before time began. The one God in nature has eternally existed as three persons. One of those persons, the Son, added a human nature to his person, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, rose from the grave, physically ascended to heaven, will physically return one day. We were dead in our sins, but God redeemed us anyway. <laughs> so be humble and grateful as you walk in the work that he has prepared for you. In this section we are considering today, Paul urges them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He shows that there is a new kind of human, not Jewish or Gentile or anything else, Christian, just Christian. 
Therefore, we should be one. We are the temple, both individually and as a whole. The church as a whole is the temple of God. This unity is where he's going today, specifically how it's achieved. Uh, no small order, given the centuries-old animosity between Jews and Gentiles. Back in the earlier part, he started his prayer, but then he pauses to, well, basically review all of this again. He points out that Christ's love alone makes possible Christian faith. Simply having knowledge will not suffice. Only the love of Christ will satisfy the longing in our souls. We can't overemphasize the importance of unity in both outreach and edification. Unity is key to our endeavors. If you've taken our membership class, you remember you may remember this graphic that represents the, the Christian life. When we are brought to belief, we learn to love God. And because we love God, we want to know more about Him. And when we learn more about Him, then we learn to love Him even more, which makes us want to know even more about Him. And we continue this upward spiral of sanctification. What one of my profs called it. I always kind of like that phrase. It's a wonderful thing, but it has a purpose beyond us. We are to share God's love in reaching out to others outside the church, the outreach. That's why we have God's love. And we are to share God's love in edifying. That means helping to build up others within the church. This is why we have God's love. That's its purpose. And this is the work to which we are called. And unity is key to both these efforts. And if it is so critical, is there a key to developing unity? I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all... What? With all what? What is it? Is it our money? Is getting our attitude to possessions and monies right? How, is that how we walk in unity? How about love? Well, yes, of course but it's not terribly descriptive. It's not practical, if you will. Is it our doctrine, our understanding of Scripture, finding a church where the people have the same personality so we can get along? <laughs> Would that not be the easy way to have unity? <laughs> that we all enjoyed the same kind of music. Maybe the problem is respect. Those young people, they just don't respect their elders enough. You know, my wife needs to respect me more. That would solve everything. We'd have unity then. <laughs> You know, all of, on and on and on. You know, it's, it's not any of those. You, you probably guessed that, didn't you? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. Humility. The key to having unity in the church is humility. Paul's saying, I know you Jews think that those lousy Romans aren't worth giving the time of day. But they are your brothers in Christ. You Greeks see yourself as better than everybody else. Rich people are obviously blessed by God more than the poor. 
If your dad's not in the house, then clearly you are not on a level with those of us who had a loving father. You're not athletic enough. You're not smart enough. You're not American enough. You're not whatever. You're not enough for us to want to be one with you. It's a terrible truth. The basic sinful human nature is to think ourselves better than those different from us. It's the truth. It's, it's who, it's our, that's basic human nature. And there is no way to have unity with that sort of attitude. So let's read that whole sentence together. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's some very interesting and fun things. Note that Paul is a prisoner, and they are to be in the bond of peace. Interesting, huh? He urges them to live right, and they are to be eager to achieve the unity that entails. Humility then fosters gentleness. This is all in the middle, in case you missed. Which promotes patience, which is carried out, one might say, demonstrated by bearing with one another in love. Which we do because we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Maybe because we, too, are persons who love with the deep, strong love of Christ, we can seek for unity. How do we achieve unity? Well, the first step is simple enough. Humility. Okay. Paul is saying to the Ephesians, God created the unity, that new humanity, and you are to maintain it. we got to understand that before that time, no Jew would stoop so low as to even associate with those Gentiles. Wouldn't go into each other's houses. Wouldn't look at each other walking down the street. And Gentiles, they weren't any too anxious to get close to those weird Israelis. <laughs> they were strange. All because both were sure they were better than the other. Paul went from theological truth to practical living. How are we to do that? We need to recognize that humility is a requirement. It will not surprise you to learn that Paul was not alone in stressing the importance of expressing humility. Peter wrote, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Clothe yourselves with humility. God gives grace to the humble, and then Peter commands them to be humble. Do you think maybe Peter expects his audience to live in humility? Maybe that might be the point here. Peter does use imagery very similar to Paul. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. But in an effort to make sure that he is very clear, he repeats the idea, but as a command with no metaphor. There's no, humble yourselves. Just let's be real clear about this. Humble yourselves. This is something we must do. We do humility. Observe this rather famous list carefully. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When the Spirit dwells in us, we find ourselves naturally moving towards love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Did you notice what's missing? There's no humility there. What? <laughs> Maybe it's because before the Spirit, who inspired those words, will fill a believer, we must have humility. In fact, maybe before he will indwell us at all, we must have humility. The psalmist wrote, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Could it be that humility is a prerequisite to salvation? To be saved from their enemies, as these ancient Israelites were to be humble. That's what they would have understood. But isn't it possible that there's a larger principle behind this truth? Is this perhaps a picture of spiritual salvation? Remember that Paul has already said that we don't do anything to earn our salvation. God, before time began, chose us. So the proper response to the gift of Jesus is humility. So important is humility that Jesus exampled it for us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility is important. So... What is it? <laughs> what is biblical humility? I mean, great, we know the word. What does it mean? Let's get a description of humility. What, and, and we should start with what it's not. Okay, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Okay, if we were to say someone had a sensuous mind, wouldn't we think of a person that was sodded in promiscuity? always chasing some addiction or another. Isn't, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that what we would say? Or maybe someone who had no religious tendencies at all, certainly not believing there is even a supernatural. Isn't that where we would go? But here Paul says a person with a sensuous mind is one who might focus on asceticism. In other words, the avoidance of any physical pleasures. That's where their focus is. And, you know, wait a minute. You mean either direction is wrong? Yeah, that's what he's saying. There are people who are very religious, but they don't worship God. They're worshiping angels, not God. They believed in the supernatural, always talking about visions, but these visions aren't from God. They're more concerned with what they can see and hear and smell and taste and touch the sensuous part of their mind, than with the spiritual truth. And they're not humble. Paul points here to people acting religious, perhaps because everybody knows that people who go to the other extreme are puffed up without reason in their own minds. So humility is not about physical deprivation or excess. 
And it's certainly not a spiritual show. Humility is not found in feelings, the sensuous mind. It's not there. That sort of thing, Paul said, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All that we have to offer, I mean, compared to Paul, what we've got to offer, it's rubbish. So, exactly what is it that we are proud of? Christ alone has anything of value to offer. This recognition that we were dead and Christ saved us is humility. That's what it is. The Lord lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. Understand that sinners do not have humility. (laughs) They don't even understand it. Paul spoke this way about pure pagans, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. In all their bad doing, haters of God are insolent, haughty, and boastful. Pretty far from humble. (laughs) They know they live opposed to God, and they don't care. I still remember as clear as a bell one time we were canvassing and used to do that in church, going house to house in the neighborhood, and I asked one fellow, far into drink with his sons, why should God let you into his perfect heaven? Why do you think? He said, probably shouldn't. There was a complete lack of terror concern in his face. He didn't care. He was insolent and haughty and boastful. In another place, Paul talks about people who want to look like they are spiritual, lovers of religion but not of God. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Wait, there are some people with who we are not supposed to associate? There shouldn't be unity? Proud, arrogant people swollen with conceit. Yeah, I guess that... That would maybe qualify. And they have. 
that strength. They have an appearance of godliness. Is that not amazing? But they deny the true power of God. I, I suppose these are the signs of those who pretend Christianity. Earlier, Paul had instructed Timothy as to why he was to avoid such people. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Association with some people will, instead of producing unity, actually cause division. Those who are puffed up with conceit can destroy unity in the church. This is not how we're supposed to be. Humility is necessary to be a part of the church. One of the old prophets wrote, He has told you, O man, what is good. But what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? These words are to the ancient Israelites but they hold true today. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Paul applies this principle of these verses. And so should we. Those with false humility may not understand, but others know that we need to hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. The whole body. Church growth individually and in each person and in bringing new people to Christ requires unity. And unity comes from the head, Jesus, and it starts with humility. <laughs> We're back there again, aren't we? So how, in a very practical way, do we live humbly in the church? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Rivalry, of course, is to have someone against whom we fight. Competition doesn't have a place in the church. <laughs> and if we are guilty of this, we need to stop. Conceit, that's back to that better than thou <laughs> Sounds better if you say better than thou. It doesn't sound like itself. But that's the problem. And the thing is, every one of us has something that is better than those around us. You know, or we are in some way better than those around us. In some way, every person is better than every other person. But recognizing that that doesn't make us superior, well, that, that's humility knowing that everybody has something special about them. Everybody. And besides, did we create ourselves? Is not everything that we have given us from God? Everything. So how can we become conceited? How can this happen? Count others more significant than yourselves. 
In other words, you got a good one and a not so good one? Give the good one. <laughs> Give the new thing. Let someone else go first. Or let someone else let you go first sometimes. You know, that's a competition too sometimes. <laughs> Just, we know what Paul means here. Put others before us. Think of their specialness rather than our own. Here's another way to show humility. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Make a conscious effort to reach down to those who can't reach up. Now Paul meant riches. I mean, that's what he was talking about. There were rich believers and they were lording it over the poor believers, right? But Paul says, don't do that. I mean, is it that hard to extend this down to our lives? You know, we're not as smart as we think. <laughs> Every person knows something that we don't know. Every person understands something that we don't get. My kids got so tired of hearing this when they were growing up, they would quote it back to me. You know, you know you're doing your job when they start to quote back to you one of your favorite things before you... <laughs> Everybody knows something I don't know that would be valuable for me to know. We need to remember that. All this instruction seems pretty clearly focused on our work in the church. So let's join James and step outside the church doors to see how one might show humility there. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Quit saying you know how your life's going to run. No, he isn't saying it's wrong to make a profit. That's not the issue here. It's wrong to think we get to decide that we're going to make a profit. That's the problem. That we think we are in charge. That's arrogance. That is evil. It's about remembering that God is in charge. Not us. The world, those outside the faith, they don't know this. And we need to be different than the world if we are those whom God has designated for salvation. This is why the early church grew so quickly. Humility was considered a weakness in Roman culture. Love was what caused you to not do right. I mean, that's, that was their culture. Unity to them didn't mean everyone together under God. That's not what they were thinking. Unity meant everyone dominated by us Romans. <laughs> yeah, that was what unity meant. To crush someone else was considered not just a right, but an obligation. And here were those crazy Christians taking care of each other. They were rescuing babies from exposure. They used to, if Romans didn't want babies, their abortion was a guy that dad would look at if he didn't want it. He'd, literally throw it on the garbage heap outside. That's what they did. 
And Christians would go around and gather those babies up and raise them. When people got sick, basically the same thing, get rid of them. And Christians would go around and find them and nurse them back to health or help them as they died. Slaves were sometimes felt to be useless to an owner and they would be beaten severely, almost to the point of death, and then thrown out. And these Christians would go find them and nurse them back to health and help them. There's a story about a very wealthy Roman woman whose slave became a believer. Felicity is her name. And she was so amazed that she believed. And when her slave and all the other Christians were gathered up and thrown into the Colosseum to the lions, she rushed in after them, refusing to be left out, even though her dad was trying to save her life because she didn't believe in this. Why do these Christians stoop so low? Why would they do this? I mean, that question was asked by many. We have had a number of historians. Roman historians would write it down. Why do these Christians do it? What's wrong with them? Why do they express such humility? Well, a lot of people found the answer. And they themselves became believers. But even when we found the answer, we need to understand that pride can cloud our spiritual life. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Clearly, Christians can suffer from pride. The antidote? To recognize that God gives us what we have. He gives us the measure of faith that we have. And then to humbly offer our gifts that we do have to and for others, counting them more significant than ourselves. <laughs> Our last thought concerning humility. Humility now leads to, in God's time, exaltation. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Do we trust God? (laughs) Maybe. Do we know he will take care of us? that he will honor us for our, okay, sometimes pitiful, faithfulness. If we know this, then why do we struggle to let go of pride? To stoop down and to place others before us? The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. There's a reason Paul started this letter with what God has done for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, making known to us the mystery of his will, a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we require possession of it to the praise of his glory. We have nothing that begins to measure up to the grace of God in our lives. Nothing. So being humble ought not to be much work for us. (laughs) Ah, but human nature. We all have one. (laughs) We all are one. And pride is a great struggle for every last one of us. But just as we didn't need us to believe, just as we don't need to protect ourselves, we can leave it to God, so we don't need to glorify ourselves. Humility is the key to unity in the church. The key. And if we want the church to grow, if we want this little expression of Christ's body to grow, we need to get it straight. Without God, we are nothing. We were dead, but he made us alive. We must be humble. But unlike those outside, we can be excited about our humility because it is one more demonstration of our salvation. Wouldn't be saved if we weren't humble. We must be humble if we want unity in the church. We can and must count others as more significant than ourselves. We can and must reach down to those who cannot reach up. We can and must realize that everyone knows and understands something that we don't. We can and must understand that all we have comes from God. And we must use it for the good of the church. And we can. And we must understand that one day he will exalt us. I think he'll do a better job than we could. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, so much. The gifts you've given to us are truly a wonder one thing and we stand in awe of them but our old nature our sin nature keeps keeps poking its head up and kind of stabs at us and we fight that pride that that we really are better than other people thing that keeps popping up in us so Lord help us to keep knocking it down (laughs) by knowing what you've done for us. Help us to do those practical things just simply to care for others more than ourselves. That's simple. And maybe like in those early days of the church, the world will look at us and say, what is wrong with those people? (laughs) They'll keep asking that question and some of them, Lord, will figure it out. 
we'll be so excited to be a part of introducing them to you through your son and by your spirit. Thank you, Father.